From time to time, people will come up to me and, and ask me for a book recommendation on a various topic of theology or biblical studies. And uh, sometimes it's hard to come up with just one title, just one book that is so significant that immediately comes to your mind as a must-read book. Like Solomon said, uh, the writing of uh, books is endless. Seems like there's they pour off the uh, printing presses, and probably a good bit of them probably never should be written. But anyway, it's hard to come up with just one book, particularly on the spur of the moment. But when it comes to a topic like we're going to be dealing with this morning and in the next week or two to follow, there is one book that immediately comes to mind. The book is relatively small, thin that is. The print is relatively large, no pictures. But it's a very readable book. It's a very readable book. And it's written by R.C. Sproul, and the title of the book is Chosen by God. In fact, I borrowed without permission the title of that book for the title of this sermon. Chosen by God. This book has helped a great many people through the years to sort through the confusing and honestly difficult subject of election and God's predestination. I commend it to you, and you can find it in our bookstore if you are so inspired. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, page 1133, 1133 in those pew Bibles. Romans chapter 9. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 6 through 13 of Romans 9. And as we begin the study, there are a number of important things that we must keep in mind as we begin this study together. So let me just quickly give you four of those. You don't need to write them down, just listen if you will. When you or I make a choice as a human being for, with regard to an object or another person, there are certain factors resident within that person or within that object that influence our choice. For example, when you are in the process of choosing a spouse for marriage, there are factors. There are things like physical attractiveness, certain character qualities, personality, spirituality, those kinds of things that enter into that choice and influence that choice as to who you think would be a good marriage spouse and who would not. But as this study and the subsequent studies in Romans chapter 9 are going to make clear, God's choice of individuals for salvation is not based upon anything within that individual. And that is hard for us to understand. But that's what the Bible teaches. Secondly, everybody knows and loves someone who does not believe the gospel. 
Every one of us here knows and loves someone who does not believe the gospel. And the idea that they do not believe because they may not be elect is too painful to contemplate. And so some people seek to soften the biblical text in an effort to kind of retain their hope for a loved one. But our theology must be determined by Scripture and not by our emotions. We need to keep that in mind. Third, some people believe that the idea of predestination and election either violates human freedom or makes God into a monster. And so they attempt to reconcile these two doctrines in a way that ends up being less than faithful to the clear teaching of Scripture with regard to either one, human freedom or God's sovereign election. Folks, this doctrine contains mystery. This doctrine contains mystery and we cannot fully understand or explain it. But... That should not surprise us. Every doctrine contains a mystery. Every time we run up against the infinite, the finite has to at some point in time say, I do not know. I mean, if you'd like, you can explain to me after the service, how was Jesus fully human and fully divine? I Await your explanation. Fourth, some in their zeal for the doctrines of grace have lifted the teaching regarding election out of its biblical context and have scholasticized it by supplementing the scriptural statements with human philosophy or logic. But when it comes to this very holy and very mysterious subject, we need to imitate the Apostle Paul. When we speak about it, sorrow should fill our hearts for the lost, just like it did his, Romans 9 and verse 2. Beyond that... We need to remember that God has revealed this doctrine to us not to satisfy our curiosity, but in order to confirm our belief in the trustworthiness of His Word. So we need to keep these things in mind as we walk here on really, really holy ground. We are going to be handling the crown jewels of the mysteries of God. So with that said, let's take a look at this text together. Now last week, we spent time in verses 1 through 5 of Romans chapter 9, and we spent that time there in order to lay a foundation and in order to establish an understanding that puts us on the right path to interpret all the rest of Romans 9, 10, and 11. 
We need to understand the major issue that causes the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit of God to take the time to pen two or excuse me, three chapters in this letter to the church at Rome. This is not a, a, a diversion for him. This is not some sort of a, of a rabbit trail or a side path. This is an, an important uh, explanation that weighs heavily upon what he has just spoken of in chapters 1 through 8. He concluded chapter 8, you'll remember, he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fine, Paul, but then what about Israel? How do you explain Israel's unbelief? If what you're telling us in Romans 8, 38 and 39 as as a summary statement of all that has gone before is true and reliable and we can bet eternity on this, Paul, then how do you explain Israel's unbelief? That's the question that is being answered in these three chapters. It is all about that. It is all about the unbelief of Israel. So this morning, as we look at verses nine, or excuse me, six through thirteen, Paul gives us two principles of sovereign election that we must understand, so that we can know that God's salvation promise will not fail. Paul writes this so that we might know that God's salvation promise to us will not fail. Because it appears that it has failed for Israel. And if it has failed for Israel, then what makes us think it won't fail for us? If the God who has committed himself in covenant to the chosen people of Israel cannot bring about their salvation, what makes you Gentiles think he's going to bring about yours? That's the big question. And that's what the Apostle Paul is Addressing So, two principles. The first one is in verses 6 through 9. I've got it on your handout for you. The first principle is that God chooses some individuals over others. God chooses some individuals over others, specifically the case of Ishmael and Isaac. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now, verse six, I told you, is key. It is really the key verse to unlock Romans 9, 10, and 11. He said, it is not as though the Word of God has failed. The Word of God here in this context has got to be a reference back to that which has just previously been spoken of in verses 4 and 5. That is, the privileges that presently belong to the nation of Israel. 
They are the Israelites, verse 4, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, who are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. This is this list of benefits or promises, all of which have saving implications for the nation of Israel, is what Paul's referring to here in a, in a catchphrase called the Word of God. He's not referring to just one particular benefit there listed in verses 4 and 5. There are eight of them. And so he's, he's catching them all together in this comprehensive term, the Word of God. It's a summary to refer to that which he has previously spoken of. He's saying it's not as though all those benefits have failed. By the way, just... Contextually, I want you to see a few ties here. Further down in verse 11, in the middle of the verse, Paul speaks about God's purpose. Do you see that in the middle of the verse? In order that God's purpose, according to His choice, might stand. I think in this context, God's purpose, verse 11, and God's Word, verse 6, and the benefits listed, verses 4 and 5, are all speaking about the same basic thing. God's God's saving work for the nation of Israel. And these privileges, as I've said, are the current possession of the Israelites to whom belongs, it says, verse 4. Yet in spite of having these privileges, the, the nation of Israel remains for the most part enemies of the gospel, Romans 11, verse 28. So how is it, how can it be that that the people that were chosen by God and that have all of these present tense saving benefits are yet at the same time enemies of the gospel of God and accursed, cut off from him and destined for an eternity in the lake of fire. How can that be? Has the word of God failed? Has the word of God failed? Now, this word failed, verse Six, ekpipto in the Greek, it means to fall off something. To fall off something or to become ineffective or to fall, if you like. It's also used, by the way, as a nautical term and where it means to run aground, for a ship to run aground on a sandbar. It's used that way in Acts 27, verse 17. So the big question, the whole question, the whole discussion here is whether Israel's rejection of the Messiah has somehow caused the word of God to run aground, to fall off, to fail, to become ineffective. Can man actually disrupt the plans and purposes of God? Is that possible? Is God frustrated by people's unbelief? Does that frustrate him? Why do some people believe and others do not? What is the answer to that question? The answer here in verse 6, look at the second half of the verse. For they are not all Israel who are descendants of Israel. In order to answer the big question about the nation of Israel, has God's promises fallen? Has the word of God run aground? Paul addresses this question of Jewish unbelief by introducing the doctrine of election. That's why he introduces it here into the text, is to answer this question, the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is that theological reality that God, for reasons that reside 
only in him sovereignly selects some individuals out of the mass of fallen humanity to receive the gift of salvation. That is what sovereign election is. God, for reasons that reside only in him, sovereignly selects some individuals out of the fallen mass of humanity to receive the gift of salvation. And specifically here in this text, what Paul says is that not everyone who is a physical descendant of Israel is actually a true Israelite. That is that not everyone born from Israel will receive the gift of salvation. Now, this is not a new notion with the Apostle Paul, by the way. In John chapter 1, verse 47, Jesus said a very similar thing. When he was first calling the disciples to himself, he, he spoke about Nathanael. And he said, when looking at Nathanael, he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, or truly, in whom is no guile. That is, behold, Nathanael, a true Israelite. This man is a true Israelite, Jesus says. Further in John 8, verse 44, when confronting the hostile leadership of the nation of Israel, who all claimed to be children of Abraham, Jesus did not dispute that they were physically children of Abraham, but he did tell them that their spiritual father was who? The devil. The devil. So this idea that not everyone who, who descends physically is indeed truly a son or a child is not new to the Apostle Paul. It's woven all through the fabric of Scripture. So the answer to Paul's question here very simply is, is though even though the majority of the nation has rejected their Messiah, God is still faithful in keeping His Word to His people because His promises were never intended to apply to every single person of Jewish descent. It's as simple as that. Look again at the verse. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. The salvation promises were only intended for a small remnant within the nation. Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul refers to that remnant and he calls them the Israel of God. The Israel of God. Paul goes on further, verse 7, and he says, Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. He's going to prove from their Old Testament, from the Jewish Old Testament, the assertion that he is making here in verse 6 that the reason the nation has rejected the Messiah, the majority of the nation, is because God never intended for the majority of the nation to receive the Messiah, but only a small elect Remnant, And he's going to prove that from the Jewish Old Testament and in particular from the book of Genesis. There in the book of Genesis, it is already recorded in the Jewish scriptures that spiritual Israel is much more narrow than national Israel. And he does it by the story of Abraham and his two sons. He introduces the story of Abraham and his two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac. Now, Presumably you are conversant enough with the Old Testament, you remember this story. Ishmael was born 13 years before Isaac. His mother was Hagar, the Egyptian 
handmaid to Abraham's wife, Sarah. And Abraham deeply desired that God would grant his promised blessings to this oldest son, Ishmael. But God had other plans. God had other plans. So God spoke these words. Genesis recorded for us. Genesis 21, verse 12. The words that are recorded here in Romans 9, 7. God spoke these words to Abraham in response to Abraham's reluctance to follow his wife Sarah's advice and banish his son Ishmael and Hagar from the family. And these words, through Isaac your descendants will be named, Romans 9 verse 7, remind Abraham of the crucial distinction between these two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham deeply desired that God would, would grant Ishmael the, the blessings, but God had other plans. Ishmael was born merely of human desire, but Isaac was born through the promise of God. That is, verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as his descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. That is, you see that at the beginning of the verse, verse 8, that is. It means that what Paul has just said in verse 7 is now going to be further elaborated on in verses 8 and 9. The big point is that not all Israelites by natural descent are Israelites by spiritual descent. So Paul's just going to further clarify the principle of divine selection in determining who is and who is not an, is, uh, an Israelite by pointing out that Abraham actually had two kinds of descendants. You see them there in verse 8. He had two kinds of descendants. The first was born of natural procreation. They are children of the flesh, verse 8. And the others not only share that common physical gene pool, with Abraham, but they also have been specifically selected by God. They are children of promise, verse 8. They are children of promise. And it is these individuals that God reckons or counts as his true children. Look at the verse. But the children of the promise are regarded, that is, they are counted, that is, they are reckoned as descendants. Reckoned or counted or regarded by who? By God. By God. Notice verse 9 as he goes on, for this is a word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. Paul is just further highlighting the divine initiative, and he does it by the first person singular verb here. I will come. I will come. It focuses all the attention on the fact that it's God who made the promise to Abraham and to his old barren wife, Sarah, that they'd finally have a son and that Isaac was that son born pursuant to the promise. It's all about God. It's all about God here. It's not about Abraham. It's not about Sarah. And it's really not even about Isaac. It is all about God and what God was going to do. So the case of Abraham's sons, Ishmael and Isaac, it demonstrates that God chooses some individuals over others. God chooses some individuals over others. And in this case, he chose Isaac instead of Ishmael. Now, 
a sharp reader, a sharp student of the Old Testament might come back and argue and say, yeah, 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 okay, Paul. Yes, he chose Isaac over Ishmael. But, but Ishmael, his mother was a foreigner, Paul. She was an Egyptian. She was an Egyptian servant. So that's why God chose Isaac over Ishmael. God was influenced by something within Ishmael and his background that caused God to overlook him and instead choose Isaac. So Paul's going to pick up and address that very question. And that's the next principle. That's the next principle. Is that God's choice is free from human influence. Paul's going to address that imaginary rejection of his earlier statement. And he's going to do it here by showing another pair of sons that are chosen. He's going to give us the next principle that his choice is free from human influence by bringing to our attention the account of Jacob and Esau. That begins in verse 10 and runs through 13. Look at verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. And when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, the main idea in this section, verses 10 through 13, is found right in the middle of verse 11. So let your eyes go there. Right to the middle of verse 11. That is the main idea in this section. In order that God's purpose, according to His choice, might stand. What purpose? The purpose is revealed for you in verse 12. The older will serve the younger. That's the purpose. Paul says this is all about God's purpose according to his choice that it would stand. What is your purpose, Paul? That the older, or excuse me, God, that the older will serve the younger. Now, there are are a lot of clauses in here that add to the argument, but we need to just peel them away for a minute so you can see the flow of the argument. So let me see if I can help you do that, beginning in verse 10. Here's Paul's case. Rebecca had conceived twins. And before they were even born, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, it was said to Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. That's the flow of the argument. And what that does is it it all highlights this very important statement. Verse 12, the older will serve the younger. And the reason that statement is important is because it's not a statement of foresight. It's not a statement of God somehow looking down the corridors of time. It is a statement of divine determination. Divine determination. The older will serve the younger. What is God's purpose according to His choice? Verse 11, His purpose is the older will serve the younger. That's His purpose. Esau serving Jacob fulfills God's purpose according to election. That's the big idea. And surrounding that are are a number of clauses that prove that God's choice in the matter was absolutely free from human influence. Absolutely free from human influence. 
So I've written for you in your notes a couple of headings there to take a look at. The first is that God's purpose, according to his choice, that Esau serves Jacob, is that it's not based on heredity. Verse 10, it is not based on heredity. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, verse 10, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. Now, it would be obviously, in fact, it would be absurdly obvious that that say that the twins had one father. Right? I mean, that doesn't add anything to the argument. In fact, it's kind of an absurdly obvious statement. Of course, the twins had one father. That's what makes them twins. Okay? So what Paul is calling attention to is the identity of that father. Verse 10. Not only this, it was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man. Who is that man, Paul? That man is our father, Isaac. Who is Isaac? Isaac is the child of promise. Isaac is the child of promise. The twins were born from the same mother and by the same father, a father or the father of promise. Okay, they're born from the father of promise. Yet even in this circumstance, there is still divine selection and limitation that's going to occur. Before someone, as I said, might argue that God chose Isaac over Ishmael because Ishmael's mother was a foreigner. Now you have a mother who is an Israelite and you have one father, Isaac, and he is the father of promise, giving birth to twin sons. And yet, even here, there's going to be limitation and selection of one son over another. I mean, why did God choose Jacob over Esau? Was it because Jacob's character was more righteous than Esau's? If you think so, then you need to go back and reread Genesis because he was a scoundrel. So no, there is nothing in Jacob that would cause God to incline God towards him over Esau. And that takes us to the next subpoint here. It's not based upon behavior. God's choice is not based upon behavior, either actual or foreseen behavior. Verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. In four clauses here, Paul is going to absolutely make sure that you understand. He's going to stress that that Jacob's preeminence over Esau has nothing to do with behavior. Nothing. And he does it by making these observations. First, that God chose Jacob over Esau prior to any behavior on their part. Look at verse 11 again. The twins were not yet born. God chose Jacob over Esau prior to any behavior on their part. The twins were not yet born. Secondly, God chose Jacob over Esau, or um, yes, Esau, not based upon any behavior on their part. So it was prior to any behavior, and then it's not based upon any behavior. Look at verse 11 again. They had not done anything good or bad. So it's prior to the behavior, and it's not based on their behavior. It's not based on the good or bad. Three, or third, 
God chose Jacob over Esau not merely prior to their good or evil deeds, but independent of their good or evil deeds. Look at the end of the verse, 11. Not because of works. Not because of works. So it's prior to their behavior. It's not based on their behavior. It's independent of their behavior, not because of works. Fourth, God chose Jacob over Esau not because of anything in them, but because of God's own free will. Look at the end of the verse. He says, but, and that is a strong adversative in the Greek, but because of him who calls. That is because of God's own sovereign choice. Beloved, it was the purpose of God. It was the purpose of God to narrow the promised blessings of the Abrahamic covenant and to choose to give it to Jacob over Esau. That was God's choice all along. And that determination occurred prior to and independent of any activity on the part of the two brothers that are involved here in this story. Therefore, by God acting in such a way, look again at verse 11, His purpose according to His choice stands. Do you see it? It stands. In other words, it does not fall. It does not fail. It does not run aground. God's purpose stands because He chose Jacob over Esau. Verse 12, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Now, there's no doubt. Listen to me now. There's no doubt in the original statement of God to Rebekah back in Genesis 25 that more was being contemplated than the fate of just two individuals. There's no doubt about that. In fact, the whole the two peoples, the two nations that would come from these two individuals, Jacob and Esau, was included in the original statement in Genesis 25. In fact, Genesis 25, verse 23, it says, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And the one people will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Furthermore, down in verse 13, Romans 9 here, there's a citation from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And the original oracle, the Malachi, also contemplated the peoples, the nations of Israel and Edom. Edom descended from Esau. So there's no doubt about that. In their original context, the prophetic word to Rebekah and the word of the prophet Malachi spoke about nations, not about individuals. So why does Paul quote these Old Testament texts? And in what way do they support the argument that he's trying to make? Or do they prove something different? Is the citation of these two texts actually disproving Paul's argument? Is he talking about God electing people groups rather than specific individuals? And there are some, by the way, who interpret Romans 9 in that way. They say that Romans 9 is not speaking about individual election. It is speaking about the election of groups of people, nations. And they prove their point by looking at Genesis 25 in its context and Malachi 1 in its original Old Testament context. 
But that's not correct. That's not understanding what Paul is really doing here in these texts. Beloved, what something means is determined by the context in which it's used. And the context that Paul is using these two Old Testament citations is the the question of what about the nation of Israel? What about all the individual descendants of Jacob that don't believe? The question is, why are there so few individual Jews that believe the gospel while the majority reject it? Simply saying that God sovereignly elects some people groups while passing over others doesn't really answer that question. Israel was an elect people group from all along. So the answer to the question lies in the principle that these two Old Testament examples supply. It's the principle that Paul wants to draw out of these texts. And that's why I believe he only quotes a portion of both of them. Do you notice that? Look again at Romans 9. He only quotes a portion of Genesis 25. He only quotes a portion of Malachi 1, 2, and 3. Actually, the the end of uh, verse 2, the very beginning of verse 3. And he quotes the portion of the Old Testament text that highlights the principle that he is explaining. That's important. The principle that these texts establish is that God's promised blessings are never enjoyed on the basis of of what a person is by birth or works, but only on the basis of God's sovereign predestinating choice of that individual. That's the principle he's drawing out of these Old Testament texts. He's not trying to prove that Israel is an elect nation. He's trying to establish the principle by which he can explain how it is individual Jews can, who are accursed are at the same time maintaining that God's promises to them haven't failed. How can I answer that question? The answer is in the principle of God's sovereign elective choice. Now, verse 13 says, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's a difficult statement to get your arms around. The idea that God loved and hated two individuals. So some would understand the word hate here in its context to mean loved less than. God loved Esau less than he loved Jacob. And they would look back, by the way, to Genesis 29, verse 31, where the word hated is translated there with regard to to Jacob's wife Leah as unloved or loved less but I think a better approach is to, is to define in the context here the word hated by the word loved, its opposite. In the context, God's love for Jacob results in God's choice of Jacob to inherit the blessings of Abraham. So accordingly, I think God's hatred of Esau is a reference to God's rejecting him from inheriting those same blessings. So in this context, I think hatred is better translated by reject. Hatred is not so much a a statement of emotion as a statement of the will. God rejected him. I mean, after all, this this citation from Malachi in verse 13 is is intended to to, uh, support the argument Paul has been making all alone. All along, rather. And so it's got to be taken in the reference to his original prophecy to Rebekah. 
The older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Jacob I chose, Esau I have rejected. That's the differentiation. That's the discrimination that's going on here. There is a divine initiative here in choosing and rejecting. And it's not based on the character differences of the two children, but is done according to the sovereign will of God. Verse 11 again in the middle, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand. So what are the implications of all of this? What are the implications of all of this? For you and I this morning. I've given you five of them. I believe I wrote them in your handout for you. Let me just briefly go over them. The first implication is that the doctrine of election illustrates the sovereignty of God and brings Him glory. It illustrates the sovereignty of God and it brings Him glory. By the way, look down at verse 23. It said God did so in order that He might make known the riches of His glory. Do you see that? Upon the vessels of mercy. God has done this to reveal His glory, to illustrate His glory. It's doxological. It's worship. God has done this so that people might worship Him. Secondly, the doctrine of election is essential to the reliability of the Scriptures. If the biblical doctrine of election is not true, the Scriptures are not reliable. That's Paul's argument. Verse 6, look at it again. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. Paul, why are you giving us all of this theology about election? I'm doing this because you need to know that the Word of God has not run aground. It has not fallen off. It has not failed. Those who object to the biblical doctrine of election have a real problem with the reliability of Scripture. They have no explanation for the disbelief of the nation of Israel. Third, the doctrine of election is sort of a derivative here, is necessary in order to make sense out of unbelief. Why do some people believe and others don't? Why is that? How do you make sense out of that? For the Apostle Paul, he makes sense out of it with regard to his countrymen, the people for whom he has great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart, the people that he were, if it were possible, wished himself accursed in their place. How does he make sense out of their unbelief? He does it through the doctrine of election. God's sovereign choice. Fourth. And this is important. The doctrine of election does not squash evangelism. It does not squash evangelism. That charge is frequently thrown in the face of those who hold to a consistent biblical teaching in this matter, and they say that if you believe in the doctrine of election, then you don't believe in evangelism. Because if they're elect, then they're going to get saved anyway, so there's no point in going out and sharing the gospel. And if they're not elect, they can't believe, so why bother sharing the gospel with them? 
So election misunderstood squashes evangelism, yes. But election properly understood in its biblical context does not squash evangelism. And what's my proof of that? My proof of that is the Apostle Paul himself. The greatest missionary church planting evangelist the church has ever known. And the author of this exposition of God's doctrine of election. So if election somehow diminishes your evangelistic zeal, the problem lies with you and not with God. Because Paul believed it, taught it, and was a powerful evangelist. Fifth. And this is important. Fifth. We cannot know. We cannot know who are elect. Unless and until they believe. You understand what I'm saying? People do not have an E stamped on their forehead. Or an E with a red circle and a line through it. This belongs to the secret counsels of God. Deuteronomy 29.29 The secret things belong to the Lord our God. You do not know if someone is elect. You cannot know if someone is elect. Until and unless they believe. It is their belief that proves their election. Again, let me just illustrate this. I've got the scripture reference there for you. First Timothy 1.13. Don't look there. I'll just remind you what the Apostle Paul says about himself. He says, Paul, former blasphemer and persecutor. If you were an odds maker in Las Vegas and you were observing the stoning of Stephen and you wanted to lay a bet at who was elect in that crowd and who was not, when you looked at the Apostle Paul at whose feet where they laid the cloaks of those who were murdering Stephen, I think you'd probably say, definitely he's not elect. But just in case you might have been hesitant, then he started on his mission to go to Damascus to kill the Christians. Now that's definitely a guy who's not elect. But what happened? What happened? In God's timing... God revealed Himself to Paul. Paul repented and came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and proved to be the greatest missionary church planter the church has ever known. You could not know whether he was elect or not. And beloved, you can't know about anybody else. So back to the original statements at the beginning of all this, if you have a friend or a relative who does not believe, Continue to share the gospel with them. Continue to pray for them. You do not know. God alone knows these things and God has not chosen to reveal it to you. So you should promiscuously sow the seed of the gospel everywhere. Everywhere. I don't know whether you're elect here this morning or not. 
You don't know. Those of you who have yet to place your saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know the status of your soul and neither do you. But I do know this. That if you will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says you shall be saved. So I call on you. I call on you. If you are here this morning and you do not know Christ. To turn from your evil ways. Cast yourself upon the mercy of God. Call out to Him. Beat your breast as it were and call out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That I believe that Jesus Christ came and died on that cross in my place. That He took upon Himself the wrath of Almighty God for all of my accumulated sin. And that it was there punished and extinguished. And His full righteousness has been credited to me as it were. I've been wrapped in the robe of that righteousness by faith. If you will, but embrace Him by faith. The Bible says you will be saved. And you will prove your election sure. As we finish here, there will be some folks over by this lighted cross. Don't leave this morning until you know for sure where you stand. Don't walk out of this place not knowing your position before your Creator. Let's pray. Our Father, we know not the secret things of your counsels. And thus we know not who you have chosen before the foundation of the earth to receive the gift of eternal life. And our Father, we know as well, or we confess that it is not our business to know these things. You've chosen not to reveal them because they don't belong to us. But instead, you've given us something that is very clear, very specific. And that is to preach the gospel. You have as well commanded our Father, not you have not suggested, you have commanded that all men everywhere repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, our Father, I pray that your spirit would move this morning in the hearts of people. That you would open their eyes to the truth, unstop their ears. Do heart replacement surgery, as the scripture says, remove their heart of stone and grant them a heart of flesh that they might believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen.